0: Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley for the Sugar Science and your host for today's podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Senta Georgia, and she has um, done some and contributed some great research uh, recently, which we're going to talk about today. Currently, she is uh, at Children's Hospital LA, where she's a principal investigator in the Center for Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Medicine. She has a faculty appointment at USC in the Department of Stem Cell Biology at uh, the Keck Medical School, and she's also in the Department of Pediatrics. She did her PhD at UCLA, and her undergraduate at Stanford, and welcome, Senta. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for
1: having me today. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I wanted to talk to you um, a little bit about, can you tell us how you got scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes?
1: Um, You know, it's kind of a fluke-like story. Um, I met my uh, mentor in an airport and needed a job, and he offered me a job, and he said, we're going to... uh, do cutting edge research with all of the latest technology and figure out pancreatic development and figure out how to cure diabetes. And I was fresh out of college and I said, sounds good. <laughs> oh my God. So I took the job and I've stayed working on beta cells for my entire career. Um, I have, my grandmother has type two diabetes, but I actually have several cousins with type one diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, diabetes has always been something that's been important to me that, um, I've always been kind of, you know, secondhand involved just because I don't have diabetes and my, none of my siblings do, but I have about three cousins, I think that have type one diabetes. And um, my grandmother has type two. So it's always something that uh, was important to my family yeah. um, and always was on our radar screen to be looking for a cure. And so when I had the opportunity to start to be involved in that, um, I jumped on it.
0: I'm so glad for that serendipitous meeting because you've been such a great contributor to the field. Um, <laughs> totally amazing how some of these things happen. I think. Um, I wondered you know what are your thoughts right now about the work being done in your your wheelhouse in in the field that's addressing type 1 diabetes you can sort of give us a little um a flyover of what's happening um, in your uh area
1: well my i i like to focus on beta cell differentiation and regeneration and so coming up with ways of of how do we supplement beta cell mass and supplement insulin production for patients that have type 1. There's also the idea of using um, uh, pluripotent stem cells and differentiating them into beta cells and being able to transplant those cells um, into patients and and looking at how to make immunologically invisible cells. And I think that that's really interesting and it has a lot of potential But um, even though the field is moving fast and moving hard towards trying to understand and trying to upskip to scale up and commercially make enough beta cells for a pate to be able to sustain patients, I kind of liken my role in all of that as to being as to making sourdough bread. So we're in COVID, everybody's stuck at home. And at least at the beginning of this, people were making a lot of sourdough bread. I've never made sourdough bread. (laughs) But I had a lot of my non-scientist friends call me like, my starter's not working, right? And so my contribution to that field is really trying to understand the starter material, Right. right? So what is it that makes a good starter? Because if your starter isn't working when you're trying to make sourdough bread, your bread is going to come out bad in the end. And we're doing better and better in the field in making better and better beta cells. But in some ways, we're still, um, we, we're still not starting with the right starting material. And I think the field is working really hard at refining those protocols to do that. But fundamentally, we still have to do basic research using um, tissue from animals and tissue that's donated and cell culture models to understand how to improve our starter material. And I think that that is fascinating and that is important and that is what is going to push the field forward is really working on that starting material.
0: Yeah, you've got to make sure that that's um, you know uh, correct if you're going to get the the optimal outcome in a functional and, uh, functional and long lasting beta cell. Right. Exactly. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of constraints on it too because when you're implanting them in the islet transplantation world, right, they have to not even be at their full. Developmental stage; they have to be uh, earlier in development so that they can live in the, the suboptimal oxygen environment. And well, so, that's so that's a, one company's perspective, right? And so, yeah. YSI is, and they're the farthest
1: along in their clinical trials, and they are using these or implanting cells that are not fully differentiated, but even that as starting material has to be the right starting material. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have work, uh, I think, but I have work coming out from my lab relatively soon that will focus on, um, the role of neurogenin three in
0: establishing that starting material and making a better starting material than what we have. That's a perfect jumping off point. Let's talk about that. Um, You've got a couple really great papers. You have this JCI paper that came out um, December 2019. Null mutations of neuro G3 are associated with delayed onset diabetes mellitus. And another great one in JBC the cellular regulators P10 and BMI1 help mediate neurogenin 3 induced cell cycle arrest. Um, mm-hmm. which, which one do you want to talk about more? <laughs> Let's talk about the patient. The, the the first one the JCI okay. Insight paper the neurog three associated with delayed onset diabetes mellitus and I see that uh, Michael German's on there with you um, yes that's kind of exciting he's a big name too um, so what what was this paper all about so um, mutation patients with mutations in
1: neurogenin three are relatively rare and um, they are not diagnosed because of having neonatal diabetes, but they're actually diagnosed because they have a condition called enteric and endocrinosis, where they don't have any endocrine cells in their gut. And I have been very fortunate to work with Dr. Martine Martine, um, who is at UCLA, and he is the person who first characterized a clinical um, phenotype of having enteric and endocrinosis in a New England Journal of Medicine paper back in 2006. Hmm. And so what he did was when he first encountered the first patient he he treated um, that didn't have any endocrine cells in their gut, he went back and looked at the literature and saw that Neurogenin 3 is required for both the endocrine differentiation in your gut and in your pancreas. And so um, we have a really great collaboration where he focuses, where we work together and focus on trying to understand the role of neurogenin three differentiation in the pancreas and neurogenin three differentiate, uh, mediated enteric endocrine differentiation in the gut. Um, So this paper focuses on the mutations of two specific patients, one of which is here at Children's Hospital Um, and um, we see regularly, and these patients have mutations that have not been described in the literature before. And so the patient that we have here at Children's Hospital, instead of having an amino acid substitution in his protein, and that amino acid substitution just decreasing the activity of the protein, he actually has um, a biallelic nucleotide, nucleic acid deletion. And so his mutation creates a premature stop codon and truncates the protein. And so the protein doesn't have its DNA binding domain, which is critical um, for its role as a transcription factor. The protein doesn't have a nuclear localization tag, which is critical for the for a transcription factor to actually get into the nucleus. Right. So this patient is um, fundamentally a a knockout like it's two null alleles for Neurogenin three and if you were looking at the mouse models you would think that this patient should have been born with no endocrine cells in his pancreas as well as no endocrine cells in his gut and he was born with no endocrine cells in his pancreas but had enough endocrine cells to sustain his blood sugar levels until he was about seven years old Hmm. Interesting. And so, that suggests that the human body has an alternative way of making endocrine cells for um, in the absence of neurogenin three. And so, what we have been very privileged to do is, thanks to his generosity, he has donated his his skin cells for us to turn them in to induce pluripotent stem cells and to be able to use those stem cells. Um, alongside of other patients stem cells and embryonic stem cells to understand how a loss of neurogenin 3 changes the trajectory of cells that are differentiating into beta cells and changes their capacity to be able to be functional and mature.
0: Okay. Um, wow, what a again, some, uh, a serendipitous situation um, because I, I would assume that this type of patient is pretty rare. It is, but we actually have two of them at Children's Hospital. And so we have another patient
1: that we are working with who has another unique mutation. And um, so Children's Hospital is an amazing place to be because we have one of the largest cohorts of patients that have diabetes on the West Coast. And um, we have a phenomenal set of doctors who Um, take care of these patients. We have more more than 1,800 type 1 diabetic children that are treated at at Children's Hospital a year. Um, But the benefit and the bonus of coming to Children's Hospital is that you have clinicians that um, work with researchers to be on the cutting edge of what's new. Yeah. And um, really facilitates us being able to do translational type work here at Children's Hospital and, and trying to enabling us to to see how our basic research then translates into clinical outcomes for our patients.
0: Yeah, and it's a it's it's it it seems to provide a really rich interface for medicine and science to to partner.
1: It is, and it's a unique situation because in a lot of institutions Um, clinicians and scientists work in separate silos but in here at Children's Hospital within the Center for Endocrinology uh, Diabetes and Metabolism we're very very much so integrated in trying to improve the health outcomes for our kids
0: that's great this is a great um, a great plug for uh, Children's Hospital LA I know they do a lot of great things and it's great to understand um, how important they are for type 1 diabetes research and treatment what about okay so let's talk about the 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 actual finding that when you had this um you know delayed onset diabetes what um if you're saying that pancreatic endocrine cell generation here was not entirely dependent on the neurog3 expression what might be other pathways that are happening um in this particular oh. patient? Like, fundamentally,
1: that's the question, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to answer. And so what that tells us is that if neurogenin 3 is required, the presence of neurogenin 3 is required in our cell culture models for these cells to be able to differentiate. And so in our our protocols to differentiate pluripotent stem cells into endocrine cells uh, or beta cells as our endpoint, if we know that neurogenic 3 is required in that process, but it's not required in vivo in our patients, then what, is, what we're trying to figure out is how are these patients making these endocrine cells? We actually yeah. don't know. And it's not that we think that they're making a better endocrine cell because eventually their endocrine cells give out and they do get diabetes. And so whatever endocrine cell they're making isn't quite right, but whatever the secret sauce is that allows them to make those endocrine cells must be missing from the protocols that we have to make beta cells now. And so that's what I mean by working on that starting material. If we can understand this process and understand what factors are there to facilitate endocrine differentiation, even in the absence of neurogenin three, the addition of those types of factors may help us get to a better end product of having mature endocrine cells, um, at the end of our differentiation protocols. So again, it's going back to just trying to understand the basic science and getting that starting material, right?
0: Yeah. And even when we talk about the whole, um, almost like the, the presentation of type one diabetes, right? It, it seems like um, now there's almost like a model of a sort of people, you know, they have the biomarker and, and, and maybe they even go into remission from, maybe they have an episode of DKA and then they maybe go into remission from it from an, another biomarker, another episode of DKA or mild one and then the full-blown, di- uh, full-blown diagnosis. It's almost like a progression. I've heard a couple of different scientists talk about it in this way and mm-hmm. so you wonder like okay when the first insulitis or immune attack happens do these sort of backup um um you know uh cells uh, come come to play or do these backup mechanisms i guess uh work to kind of you know keep keep insulin um flowing or or is it just or do you think that this is this is just um not really the the right paradigm for it. No, I
1: think that that's, that's entirely possible because we can see that the onset, if, if, if you look at the studies, the clinical studies that are looking at at, um, patient families, especially people who are predisposed to diabetes and monitoring the onset of their different, um, of the different biomarkers and the different antibodies and looking at their progression into having type 1 diabetes it's definitely not an off and on switch Mm -hmm. right so that much is clear and um if we know if we can figure out how to turn the switch off and that's an immunological problem and I make no, I, that is just not my wheelhouse, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I tell people that curing type one diabetes is a two pronged approach. Like first we have to stop the autoimmune assault, and then we have to make a new beta cells, right? True. So if we can, instead, If we can switch off that immunological assault, then what we need to do is switch on beta cell regeneration. And neurogenin 3 may have a role in that. um, And it's not necessarily a positive role, right? Because maybe it takes neurogenin 3 being off to allow new cells to come on, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's why it's important to understand the role of these proteins in. in de- differentiation and in regeneration,
0: yeah, it's a complex. Um, it's a complex uh, protein, um, and and yeah, it is very interesting. As I mean, is it is it as you said before? You know, it kind of goes. It creates a situation where instead of um, uh, you know, uh, anyway, it's a it's a long it's a it's a good uh, the, the example you gave me earlier <laughs> with the fact that the um, it's almost like letting the air out of your tires so that the, the car still goes, but more slowly. And um, I loved how you, how you phrased that, but it is curious as to whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, right. And we'll-
1: it's so, so one of the things that we know is that we don't generally see the reactivation of Neurogenin 3 in the adult pancreas, right? And so, like once differentiation has completed, it's very rare that you see the reactivation of neurogenin 3. But if replication is not the primary means of, of regenerating beta cell mass, and we have to allow for beta cell differentiation to ha- happen from a punitive, you know, progenitor cell that's in the pancreas somewhere. And that does not require neurogenin 3 to happen, then we need a model of differentiation in the absence of neurogenin 3 to understand how that happens. And not just how it happens, but the cells that you get out in the end will they be sufficient to actually maintain glucose homeostasis? Are they going to be functional?
0: Yeah. And so that's why it's important. Right. Are they going to be, you know. Just a backup singer that can go on for a little while, but not the real the real deal. Um, right? Are you want- Diana
1: Ross or are you a Supreme? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> who is it? Who can stick around <laughs> the longest? I wanted um, I wanted to ask you. So so what is going on now? So what's your next steps in the laboratory? What are you working on uh, following um, this fantastic paper?
1: So um, we have another paper that is under review now that really goes into more depth about that particular patient's mutation and how it manifests, not just in differentiation of endocrine cells, but in differentiation of the whole pancreas. Mm. And what we find is that patients that have, the, or the patient that has this particular mutation in Neurogenin 3 actually has um, agenesis of the pancreas. Okay. So more like um, a person who basically his entire pancreas didn't differentiate, not just his endocrine cells. Hmm. And so what that suggests to us is that neurogenin three is important earlier in differentiation than we first suspected. And we have work that shows that, um, or let me rephrase this. So if you look at the protocols that we use to differentiate endocrine cells in vitro, from pluripotent stem cells, we actually repress the expression of neurogenin-3 early and then let off those breaks to get a big burst of neurogenin-3 expression. What we find is that neurogenin-3 may need to be expressed earlier than those breaks are allowing during differentiation. Hmm. And so this gets back to the concept of trying to get the starting material right.
0: Yeah. And being able to mm-hmm,
1: and being able to use these cells to get the timing right. And so um, the idea or being able to present the the clinical data and actually measure the patient's pancreas and measure his exocrine function and show how long that, that has been an issue for the patient. And even by replacing his exocrine enzymes, improving his um, absor- or dietary absorption and allowing him to actually put on weight and grow more efficiently, even though he doesn't have um, endocrine cells in his intestine, is a testament to the fact that this is actually important and has been hindering this patient clinically. And so, even though it's one patient, we think that we've made some important insights one, into the role of neurogenin 3 during differentiation of your whole pancreas, not just your beta cells. And two, provided a window of of, um, clinical insight for clinicians who are treating these patients to hopefully improve their quality of life by supplementing them with pancreatic enzymes if they have the phenotype where they um, have pancreatic insufficiency. So that is like, under review and being revised and we're working on that. So hopefully that's gonna come out soon. But um, as a parent and as an investigator at Children's Hospital, what we've noticed is that during this COVID lockdown and um, Safer at Home that we've been subjected to is that we are seeing more children presenting at Children's Hospital that have increased uh, or more children presenting with new onset diabetes, both type one and type two diabetes, who are presenting in diabetic ketoacidosis. And we have um, gotten that data together and that is also um, being prepared in a manuscript for submission and review. But we've seen a doubling in the number of kids who are presenting with new onset type one diabetes in DKA, and we actually see like a fivefold increase in the number of children who are presenting with type two new onset in DKA. And
0: so, and s- sorry, are are, are these um, kids also presenting with the classic biomarkers, or because there was something I read recently that that um, noted that it's not a classic presentation? But is that well? True?
1: the presentation differences. So the ones who are presenting with type one are presenting with at least some of the antibodies. That's why they're being called type ones instead of type twos, but the diabetic ketoacidosis is definitely more severe than you would expect. And their, um, their A1C levels are lower than you would expect for someone in DKA. Um, that had long-standing diabetes and that's why we don't think it's a delay of care it actually suggests that these patients may have had a rapid loss of beta cells or beta cell function that may um, have preceded their presentation in dka and so because of this observation um, i applied for a grant and was awarded a grant from the american diabetes association to investigate the, the effects of COVID-19 infections on beta cells directly. And so that work is ongoing, and um, there's a lot of buzz in the field of people just trying to understand if COVID-19 has some sort of negative, direct negative effects on um, beta cell function, or if it's a secondary effect. On beta cell function. And our work is pointing to the idea that it is a primary effect on beta cells.
0: It, it, are, it, are you able to elaborate on what that primary effect might look like or, or, or be? Is it still? So, um,
1: it, well, it's not even impressed yet. We're still working on it. But our preliminary findings suggest that, uh, first of all, we are not using human samples for this we're actually using non-human primate samples to understand this and so there's been a lot of um, work and companies who are going into developing a vaccine and before you can develop that vaccine you have to test it on primates um, before you can test it on people before you can go into clinical trials and so in the effort to be efficient and to respect the donation of these animals' um, lives to us understanding this disease, Um, there's a company who has been running these vaccine trials, and they have been gracious enough to send us the pancreas of those animals. And so we're not increasing the number of animals that are being used, but we're trying to use these animals more efficiently. And um, it also allows for us to have... Um, complete blood chemistries and know how infected these animals were. they have CT scans that we can measure to look at their pancreas all during this in, during the course of infection, and um, some of them even have the vaccine and so we 're going to be able to understand if the vaccine is not just helping prevent the infection in the lungs but also may be preventing the sec- primary effects that we 're seeing in the beta cells and so from our n- are animal models that we're using to investigate um, the effects of COVID infection on beta cell function. What we're seeing is a change in cellularity of the islets. And so we see a degranulation of the beta cells, suggesting that the beta cells are stressed during the infection. And then when we look at a later time point post-infection, we see that the beta cells do not look as granulated or stressed, but we see an increase in the number of alpha cells which yes. may be a precursor to beta cell regeneration. We're not sure. Um, and we also see that there is a marked change in the metabolism of the beta cells. Okay, And so it is really important for beta cells, healthy beta cells use oxidative phosphorylation for their metabolism. And the, um, the uh, proton gradients that are, Um, uh, being made during oxidative metabolism then go on to increase calcium in the beta cell and that calcium then effectuates insulin secretion. But when beta cells are sick and stressed they move towards a more glycolytic type of cellular metabolism and then that decreases their capacity to secrete insulin. And so we know using um, fluorescence lifetime imaging that we're seeing a shift in the metabolism of beta cells to something that's more glycolytic. And one of the hypotheses is is that once that shift happens, they never recover and get back. And so we are looking, we're in the process of acquiring more samples that are post-infection, like two and three months post-infection to see if the capacity to secrete insulin, or to see if the metabolism has recovered in these beta cells of of these animals that are infected with COVID.
0: Yeah, yes. So whether or not they can switch back to the proper metabolic state.
1: Right. But so there's also a lot of work in in the islet transplantation field um, that shows that there is a biomarker for beta cell death, and it's in the type one field too for new onsets and looking at the presence of hypomethylated insulin DNA in the mm-hmm. blood as a biomarker for beta cell death and so we're also quite looking in the serum of these animal models to see if are we losing beta cells or and that's why we're getting this onset of Um, diabetic ketoacidosis because you have a massive loss of beta cells and then the beta cells that are left are stressed out they switch to glycolysis and then they never switch back Um, or is it just a functional defect and we don't see that loss of beta cells for people who are interested in type or let me rephrase that there's also the prevalence or the not prevalence but the this MISC disease that we see in kids who have recovered from covid which is basically a flare up of their immune system and so we don't have a model of MISC in our animal models of covid but we are looking at the serum of MISC patients that we have here at children's hospital to see if misc is actually driving beta cell death and um,
0: creating um, a type one like phenotype is this related to the kawasaki disease that's been sort of uh, thrown around kids yes. with um uh, the covid yes
1: so the misc is a kawasaki's like disease with kids with covid
0: okay and then, so this is just fascinating. Um, I guess you know silver lining is that maybe some um, s- some data and some science will be le- we learned from uh, regarding beta cells and their um, demise in type one uh, from this mm-hmm. COVID pandemic i mean it's 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 so difficult um, for everyone but but hopefully maybe some um some of the basic science uh can be can be learned
1: we hope so especially because we see this this increase in kids that are in new onset like it it may be we're trying to understand if covid is driving those that new onset so just with our kids here at children's hospital we've seen an in a doubling of the number of type one new onset kids in dka but if you look at some of the other um International databases, um, there is a 25%, I believe the number is 25% uptick in the number of patients presenting in type 1 right now. And of those new patients, half of them are positive for the serology, for the antibodies for COVID-19. I think it's 40%. So um, there does seem to be a connection And so if we can understand that connection and how COVID may be driving new onset type one diabetes, then we might be able to make some fundamental insights into the early stages of type one diabetes too.
0: And when the kids, there's no, there's really, I mean, I don't know if you can comment on this yet, but have there been any cases of um, the kids who have the type one diabetes um, as a result of potentially of COVID, is there any you know coming out of it or th- are there any that recover that uh it's too early to say get better now, yeah, I think it is too early I guess um one last thing is co um beta cells have ace two receptors right um like uh, other cells in the body like lung cells that are being affected so drastically by the COVID disease is there any um speculation on how that might be um figuring into this whole, um, you know, disease state or, you know, impact of
1: COVID? So I would just like to point out that there's a controversy in the field right now about um, human beta cells having the um, ACE2 receptor. Uh, um, There have been two or three papers that have come out to say that beta cells do um, express the ACE2 receptor, but I just saw two papers that are on BioXRV out of the University of Florida in Vanderbilt that argue that they don't see very high levels of the ACE2 receptor in beta cells. So I think that the field um, is out on that. I can tell you that monkey beta cells have high levels of the ACE2 receptor, but even if it's not as high as what we see in the lung, the ACE2 receptor is not expressed everywhere. And so mm. my hypothesis, and this is just a hypothesis, is that if you get this infection of your lungs, um, which is highly, a highly vascularized tissue, and you have just a little bit of viremia, so a little bit of the virus gets into your bloodstream, it's going to attach where it can. And beta cells have this H2 receptor and they are also highly vascularized. Eyelids mm-hmm. are highly vascularized. And so it makes sense if that is the case, that beta cells would kind of be a sink to soak up some of that viral infections yeah. that may be getting into the blood at very low levels from your lungs.
0: Right. That's an interesting, yeah, that's a great, um, uh, perspective and we'll have to, you know, see as, uh, he, he, as everyone sort of uh, decides whether or not the the ACE2 receptors are on the beta cells and whether that's important and whether or not, you know, I mean, as you said, you may not need that much. It right. you may not and need I that much. That, I think that that's the case because in our primate models, we can
1: show by electron microscopy and by RNA in C2 hybridization that the RNA is present in the viral particles are present in the beta cells from animals that were um, inoculated with um,
0: COVID intranasally. I so yeah. it got there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is this is very interesting data. And thank you for sharing this. I think, um, is there, you know, if someone is interested in collaborating with Children's Hospital uh, regarding this COVID work, uh, is it a possibility? I mean... Are are you looking for postdoc graduate students or even other um, collaborators. Of course, we're
1: always looking to collaborate and we're always um, we're always interested in smart people who are motivated and dedicated to trying to understand beta cell biology as a means for helping people who
0: have type one and type two diabetes. That's so fantastic. Hopefully some of our um, listeners will hear this and say, wow, this is so much, uh, there's so much exciting work going on at Children's Hospital LA. I'm gonna be reaching out to Santa and hopefully you won't get inundated with calls. Good news, bad news. Um, Thank you, I mean, I just, this has been amazing. I wanted to say, is there anything else you'd like to share with um, our audience or maybe even young researchers that are dealing with the current pandemic uh, constraints? Um, I have to say for young researchers that
1: you have the possibility to um, do amazing things right now. Like the field, even though that we're limited with our time in the lab, the field is still moving forward. And um, it's hard to do, it might be harder to do the type of work that you were originally interested in, but it's not impossible. And um, as a person who's, actually been in the field for almost 20 years, which I, I shouldn't like blow my mind that I've been doing this that long because of how old I am, but it does like, <laughs> um, this too shall pass. Right. And so, um, use this time to acquire new skills, to take the time that we don't often get in science these days. And I do think that people used to have which is to just sit down and think. Set, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> wisdom. Totally. Just sit down and think.
0: Totally,
1: because you aren't, you don't have the pre- you, you do have the pressure to be in the lab, but there, at least in our situation at our institution, you can't be in the lab all the time. And so you have the opportunity to read and think deeply and listen to lectures. There are so many lectures online right now that you didn't have access to before or you didn't have the time to watch. And and that's how you're going to become a thought leader. You can actually become a thought leader if you take the time to think and not just what's happening in the literature now but go back to look at papers from before and classic papers to so really just take the time to do a deep dive and you will be amazed at how inspirational that can be and how informative it can be in plotting the the experiments that you want to do next.
0: Yeah, I really agree with that. I think that when you um, go back through the literature and even um, take a look at some of the past work that's been done with a fresh eye uh, from where you are now in your, in your research as well as where we are now technological, technologically w- uh, wise and um, what you know now going back and revisiting what's been done in the past can give in new insights exactly as you're saying
1: yeah definitely and so that's what I would tell people um, students like don't panic This too shall pass, but what can you do in the meantime to prepare for what you want to do next, as soon as it's done? And the best thing to do right now is to acquire new skills and to take the time to actually think about what you're doing and what you want to do next.
0: That is absolutely the best advice I've heard. Um, And thank you so much for for giving your time um, and, and giving your wisdom. And we so appreciate hearing from you and continue. Um, we'll be watching what you're doing and, and really uh, interested to see what comes out of your lab, uh, your collaborators uh, labs and um, Children's Hospital LA it's such an important place for uh, learning more about t- type one diabetes and the impact of the, of the COVID virus on it as well. So thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You
1: are a great host and it seems like it is a great podcast. So I look forward to listening in the future. Thank
0: you.